We know now that in the early years of the 20th century, this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's. Men from Moto. Digital strategies with Travis Sowers and David Seville. Intellect, vast, cool, and unsympathetic. Broadcast to the world with the uncanny help of Mana Deprived and FaceToFaceGames.com. Greetings, people of Earth. We're the men from Moto, and you're listening to episode 92, Draft 102. My name is David Sville, and I have Travis Sowers with me again this week. How are you, sir? I am a happy Travis. How are things in your world, Dave? Also great. Um, did you apply to be a professor at your local university yet? No. Because after the la- after the class you taught last week, I feel like you probably should. Huh. Yeah, I, I feel like I've been giving a, a course on it in stream this week, which has actually gone really well. There were a lot of people that said they've been looking for a stream to learn how to draft, and I've, I feel like we've done the right thing. I've I've gone through a lot of drafts on stream and talked through all of the picks based on picking Brave and Quadrant Theory, and I'm I'm excited to kind of bring the second part to this and go through that as well because I've been using it and they'll say, wait a minute, that doesn't fit in Brave or Quadrant Theory. Why are you taking that? And I'm like, listen to part two. I got something for you. <laughs> that's that's awesome. Do you find that um, they're like, I mean, your chat's pretty good when it comes to magic skill wise, but I mean, you have a lot of new players come in in there though. Do you have a feeling as to whether people are picking up on this or not? I had multiple people come in today and say that they had their first seven win run. And I had Schmuck of All Trades, who's a longtime viewer, super cool dude. If you want to follow him on Twitter, he posts some really neat art now and then. He's done pictures of me in Dutch, pictures of his D&D party and other streamers that he watches. But he came in and resubscribed for his 40th month and said, I've been watching this stream for over four years and I learned a lot from Draft 101. So like, I feel like we covered the basics enough, but also like there's some people who have played draft and done draft, but maybe not really thought about it that much. So some of this, like they'd picked up just cause they'd done it so much and they'd seen what worked, but getting the theory behind it may help people to do this faster in a new format. So I, I honestly think like these lessons aren't just for, you know, brand new players. They're for anybody who's interested in understanding the fundamentals of, of draft We've also bumped into a lot of situations where I'll have, like Ryan Sachs came in in my chat, and Ryan's a phenomenal limited player, um, super cool dude, and he was disagreeing with me on some points until I said, I'm talking about basics for beginners, man, and he's like, oh yeah, 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 learn the rules, then you can learn when to break them. Yep. So I I feel like that's what we're doing now, is just kind of laying down that rule set, and then once you've learned a format, or you've got 20 drafts under you and you know what you're doing then we'll talk about breaking the rules and, and go do it and have fun. And perhaps, you know, one day we'll have a draft 301 and we'll talk about breaking the rules. Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing is that every draft format is a little bit different. So like mm-hmm. trying to break it and trying to break those rules is going to be different in every format. But if you have these solid fundamentals, the basics behind you, you know, that gets you 70% of the way there. Um, and if And if your goal is to just really be, you know, a six win arena drafter consistently, you know, these should take you there in most formats. I am a little concerned, though, that you're you're teaching all of these people and all these people are coming into your chat saying they're going 7-1 and it's like they've had their first 7-1. You're stealing wins from me. <laughs> you're stealing wins from you. Yeah, you know, but I'm I'm helping people enjoy limited because it like it, it honestly started with people coming into the chat being like, I'm enjoying constructed. I'm nervous to play limited. And this is my favorite way to play magic. There's other ways to play magic that I don't like so much, but I know other people do. I, I mentioned this a couple times, but like commander's not for me. If it's for you, that's cool. Have fun with it, but it's not for me. And maybe draft isn't for somebody, but I at least want them to try it. I want them to try it and know what they're doing and then like have the opportunity to, to play magic in what I think is the best way to play it. Uh, so I, I'm just happy to be able to share that with people. If it means the competition's a little stiffer, then I'll just have to get a little better. There you go. We'll save. We'll save a few secrets. We'll hold a few in the back pocket for, for later on down the road when you know paying people or whatever, people will pay yeah. us to, for the for the advice, and then we don't have to win anymore because we're getting paid. There you go. I'll take it. All right. So last week uh, we did draft one hundred and one, and you can go back into the Men for Moto archives and, and check that out for people in the future listening to this two or three years down the road, hopefully. 
Um, we talked about Quadrant Theory, which was a, uh, a limited resource Brian Wong uh, creation to kind of grade where cards go um, in, in, the, in the many states of a game and, and evaluate how good it was there. Um, we talked about uh, the Brave Theory, so uh, Travis's theory um, on card or uh, t- card type prioritization, you know, bombs and removal and things like that. Um, and this week we're going to talk about kind of not necessarily the next level topics, but we're going to talk about a couple of things that go into um, making some picks, not just the Brave and not just the Quadrant Theory, but a couple of other things you need to keep in mind, which will give you that little bit of an edge over people that uh, maybe aren't thinking about these things. And uh, hopefully you can put all of this together and um, come up with a you know, solid draft strategy that works for you that should be able to translate between you know most regular draft sets. That's That's kind of our goal here today. Yeah, and I would also again encourage you to remember that both of these podcasts, Draft 101 and 102, both of these lessons are about drafting a deck. None of this has anything to do with the gameplay. Uh, we've got plenty of episodes that have talked about gameplay, and I'm sure we'll have plenty more in the future. Uh, but right now, these two, we're just getting you to to like sit down and do your first draft and sort of know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. I think what we're... While you mentioned that, I do want to point out a couple of topics that I think are a couple of podcasts that have topics that are are, in, are interesting gameplay topics, um, specifically the episode on mulliganing, which is you mulligan too much. I don't remember the episode number. Um, and the other one that I can think of off the top of my head is uh, the one on when to use your removal in Limited. I think we mm-hmm. called it Fire It Off, if I remember yep. correctly. Um, so once you get through these episodes, if you're looking for a little more gameplay, uh, go back through your archives and, and try to find those two episodes, and, and that'll give you some interesting information that might take your game to the next level. Agree. Okay. So we're going to start it off with a discussion about combos versus synergy. So I'm going to open this up with a, an excerpt from a Wizards article on on combos. A combo refers to cards that interact with each other in a way that's significantly stronger than the sum of their parts. For example, a single Pestermite by itself isn't very impactful. A single Splinter Twin by itself doesn't do anything. However, these two cards in combination create an infinite number of creatures. That interaction is significantly stronger than two cards individually. Synergy refers to cards that work well together and enhance the value of each other. Decks that are high in synergy are sometimes combo decks, but not always. For example... Goblin Tribal is a synergistic deck, but not a combo deck. A combo deck is a type of synergy deck. You are trying to assemble a group of cards that give you a powerful effect all at once. Usually this effect is your win condition. Um, I can post the link to that article that that I found that from. It was from uh, 2017, I believe. So the the things that I pull away from this description, and and we actually, it was funny because we actually talked about this in the the warm-up show, and we were kind of differing on our definition between combo and synergy. I look at a combo as... If you land this, you probably win the game right away. And, you know, it's, it's usually like an infinite combo or some kind of unbeatable combo. Um, or it's just significantly powerful or more powerful than the two cards on their own or even the two cards, you know, together in a, in a vacuum, let's say. Um, a good combo that I can think of from a recent draft set um, is from the Kaladesh block. Uh, Sahili and Felidar Guardian. So Sahili was the Planeswalker, and one of her abilities was make a copy of a creature, uh, and 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 it gets haste. And Felidar Guardian was able to blink, uh, so re- exile and return to the battlefield uh, any permanent uh, or any non-land permanent or something like that. So the combo was is you know Sahili would blink the Felidar Guardian, and then the Felidar Guardian would blink Sahili, and then all of a sudden you had these hasty cats that were attacking your opponent for lethal. So, so to break that down, if you ever landed Philidar Gar- Guardian and Sahili in Kaladesh Limited, you won the game right then. There was nothing your opponent could do about it. You exactly. had infinite one fours that were attacking. Exactly. Infinite combo, windmill slam, you win the game, no problem. Now, Sahili on her own was not very good, if I remember correctly. Philidar Guardian okay. on, on its own was... was okay as well like it didn't really see a lot of play um in in most limited decks it didn't really do a lot um but you know you add those two together and it's just an instant win so it's infinitely better than each of the cards on their own or even each of their cards without considering the combo together right so so Mm -hmm. compare that to synergy now and synergy is is i look at it as more as as cards that gain an advantage when they're together but it's not necessarily game breaking and the cards themselves are usually pretty good on their own so a synergy just like 
you know, adding a little bit of spice to the soup as, and, and the combo is like, well, you don't have soup if you don't have the ingredients at all. Yeah. And to be fair, like scouring my mind, I don't really remember combos of the power level of Sahili and Felidar Guardian uh, in limited in a long time. Like you'll you'll see the Pestermite combo in cube, which is basically it functions the same as Sahili. It's a two one flyer for three when you, it comes into the battlefield. It untaps a permanent, and then Splinter Twin was two red red for an enchantment. Uh, you put it on a creature, you tap the creature, and a copy of that creature comes into play and gains haste. So the trick was you would play the Pestermite, then you'd play the Splinter Twin on it, tap the Pestermite to make another one, the new one untaps the original, and then you can continue to repeat that until you have infinite two ones and then swing and kill them. Um, we've also seen in Cube a long time ago the, the classic combo of Time Vault, which was an artifact that comes into play tapped. You can skip a turn to untap it, and then tap it to take an extra turn. And Voltaic Key, if you've been playing Dominaria recently and seen Voltaic Servant, that's a callback to that, which basically you could tap it to untap an artifact. Meaning, if you got those two cards in play, you could take infinite turns. It didn't really matter what you did with them from there, because your opponent never got another turn. But like, I don't remember anything like that power level in Limited in ages. There was, and I just thought of this now, in the Ixalan block... There was the Polyraptor Forerunner combo. Yeah. Which which I wouldn't necessarily call a synergy. I would call it a combo because usually it won you the game. But the, the combo was is um, Polyraptor, whenever it took damage, it made a copy of itself. And I think it was a 5-5 five, five for 8 or an 8-8 eight, eight for an 8 or something like that. It was like a 5-5. Five, five. And the Forerunner of the Empire, Empire was the red one. Whenever a creature entered the battlefield under your control, it dealt one damage to everything. So quite frequently what happened there, and if you stacked your triggers right, is you ended up with like eight or nine polyraptors. I don't remember the exact number. And your opponent probably didn't have a board anymore. And you lost your forerunner, but because you had, you know, 45 power and toughness on the board, you generally won the next turn. Mm -hmm. So not an instant win combo, but generally speaking, if you landed that combo, you you probably won the game. So I would, I would regard that as, as a modern day limited combo as well. Sure. But I think for the purposes of this and for Draft 101, what we're really going to be talking about here is more synergy than combos. And the place that I want to direct you as we're going into this synergy is to look for synergy between cards that are already good on their own. So if if I draft two cards that play well together, and maybe even is like a mini combo, if, if you want to call it that. And again, this, this language is difficult, but we're going to right now define combo as two cards that when you play them, you win, or you win shortly thereafter. We're going to define synergy as two cards that interact favorably together. Okay. Now within that, I can take some bad, I can build like a bad synergy or a good synergy. Let me give you an example. Uh, we're going to go to a recent M set, uh, M19, but even years later, this this will hold up. So a Johnny's Pride Mate was in this set. Uh, it's one and a white for a 2-2. When you gain life, you put a plus one, plus one counter on it. A good combo with that was Fountain of Renewal. This was an artifact that you could play for one colorless. At the beginning of each upkeep, you gain one life, and you could spend three mana to sacrifice it and draw a card. Fountain of Renewal was basically playable on its own because you could cash it in later, there were life gain synergies in black and white, as well as artifact synergies in blue and white. So this was usually a role player in, in decks touching those three colors. So that was a good combo because I'd be happy to play either of those two cards in my deck. Like have a Johnny's Pride Mate and no Fountain of Renewal, no problem. It's a 2-2. Have Fountain of Renewal and no a Johnny's Pride Mate, no problem. Perhaps I have some synergy with artifacts, or at least I can cycle it and gain a few life points along the way. A bad example is the enchantment Ajani's Welcome. And you would think that these two would go together because they both say Ajani's on them. But Ajani's Welcome was an enchantment for one. When you play a creature, you gain one life. So the idea was you would play Ajani's Welcome, then you would play creatures, and that would pump your pride mate. The problem was, and we discussed this some last week, is the value of a card. I had to spend a card to get that Ajani's Welcome going. And it's not doing anything on its own other than gaining me life. Whereas the Fountain of Renewal, yes, I do have to spend the card on it. But if I no longer need the effect or just need to get deeper in my deck, I can get that card back by cashing it in. 
So when you're evaluating cards in, in your quadrant theory, um, and they are synergistic with cards in your deck, do you start to evaluate them in the context of that synergy it, when you're doing your quadrant theory? So for example, Fountain of Renewal plus Ajani's Primate. So Fountain of Renewal, maybe not great, you know, when you're when you're behind or maybe when you're at parity, it's not as good. But if you all of a sudden have an Ajani's Primate in your deck or two of them in your deck, now it becomes a little bit better in the late game because it can increase the value of your Johnny's pride mates later. Does it, does that bump your, your valuations around a little bit if they're good synergies? Certainly. And this is why we have to talk about synergy because some of the synergy cards just don't work on the quadrant theory. Like if, if you're going only by quadrant theory and only by brave drafting, you would never pick a fountain of renewal. But if we're into pack three and I have an, a Johnny's pride mate, um, and two epicures of blood, then all of a sudden I'm very interested in the Fountain of Renewal. God forbid I have two Pride Mates and two Epicures and a Neonate. Like, and, and I realize I'm, I'm dropping off a lot of card names, but Life Gain was a big synergy theme in this particular set. And all of those are cards that wanted you to be gaining life so that you could get a particular effect. So like, once I have enough of, the, of one type of the mechanic, the payoffs, we'll call them, then the enablers get quite important to me. And this, this holds with, with any sort of synergy that you're talking about. We're talking about life game with a Johnny's pride mate here, but if we were talking about Eldritch Moon, we could easily be talking about emerge creatures and emerge enablers. If we're talking about, you know, original Innistrad block, we could be talking about self-mill and spider spawning, right? Like, it doesn't matter what the synergy is. It's get the payoffs first if they're good on their own, and usually they are, and that's the trick to this, is the payoffs are usually just good, and then find the enablers once you've already got them. If at all possible, though, make sure that both sides of the cards are playable. And I've got some more examples here for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's interesting that you put it on, or put it in the in the reference or the phrase um, enabler and payoff, because I think that's something we use quite frequently, and that might not really make sense to, to newer players, but if you, if you think about it... Um, you know the the payoff is the end result of the engine and and the enabler is the gas that goes in the engine and and that's where the synergy decks are better than combo decks because the combo decks are generally speaking um the enabler and the payoff at the same time so if you don't get those pieces or you get the one piece but not the other um you you know end up you end up with a stalled stalled engine and you're not going anywhere right um whereas the synergy can actually chug along a little bit potentially without the without the enabler because the payoffs are fine on their own and you can fuel it with something else or you can just play the game of magic. Um, but then it really shines, obviously both combos and synergy, they really shine when you get all the pieces together. The other thing I think the difference between combo and synergy is that generally when you're drafting synergy, and this is, this is a generally speaking is a lot more of the pieces of your deck go together, right? So, so you take life gain from, from M19 you know, life gain was a synergy, and if you had maybe, you know, two, you could have like multiple payoffs and one enabler, or, or multiple payoffs and two enablers, and it didn't matter what combo or combination of those you got, it was usually doing its thing, right? You were usually getting that extra value out of it. Whereas, as the combo, you know, quite frequently, so for example, this Heheli and Felidar Guardian combo, um, you only had the two pieces in your deck, or maybe you had Saheeli and two Felidar Guardians. Um, and, and you're, you're trying to get the game to a state, you know, if you're not winning where you can win with that combo. So if you have a Saheeli in your hand, you probably don't play it because you can't protect it until you get the Felidar Guardian. And if you have a Felidar Guardian in your hand, you might not play it out on the board if your opponent has seen that you have the combo because you're afraid of getting it removed. So you're, you're warping your game around trying to protect your combo and trying to win the game with it. Whereas Synergy, you're just playing Magic and getting extra value when you drew your two cards that you put in your deck to work well together. Yeah, yeah. So I I think after all that Dave has said there, we can kind of dial this back and look at some more particular interactions. And the the first place to kind of stick is you're really not going to draft a combo deck in most limited formats. You're going to draft cards that have Synergy. So let's, let's give another example. I'll use this one from Dominaria. Um, but like you, you can go back nearly anywhere and find these. A, 
an example of what I think is is a good synergy would be the card Valduk plus Short Sword. So Valduk is two and a red for a 3-2 legendary creature. If he has an aura or an enchantment attached to him at the beginning of combat on your turn, you get a 3-1 elemental token with haste and trample and sacrifice at end of turn. Short Sorted is an equipment for one. Its equip cost is one, and it gives the creature plus one, plus one. So obviously the the trick here is you play Valduk, you put the short sword on him, all of a sudden he's attacking as a 4-3. If he doesn't have good attacks, you can still send in little 3-1 hasty elemental dudes, uh, which were remarkably hard to block in, in that particular format. Things didn't get that big, so that was a real threat. The reason I like this is Valduk is pretty good on his own, right? Like most decks would be pretty happy to play a 3-mana three 3-2. Three Red certainly would. Um, it was an uncommon, so you weren't really going out of your way to pick one up. And Short Sword was just an okay equipment. You could kind of put that in your deck, put it on any of your creatures, and they were going to be all right. Uh, there were a lot of Hill Giants in the formats, a lot of 2-3s, a lot of 1-3s, and that extra power and toughness could give you a, a, a good attacker or a good blocker. If you could put it on a flyer, it would be all right. So if I draw Valduk and no Short Sword, I'm okay. If I draw a Short Sword and no Valduk, I'm okay. If I draw them both, I've got a little engine going and I can really get some value. An example I put in as like using the same cards of a bad combo that like I've had people suggesting that I go for in chat and I'm like, we, we got to talk about this for a minute, guys, is Valduk plus Curator's Ward. So Curator's Ward was two and a blue. Enchanted Permanent gets Hexproof. If it dies and was legendary... Uh, or excuse me, if it dies and if it goes to the graveyard and it was historic, you draw two cards. So they're like, but you don't understand. If you play Valduk and then you play Curator's Ward on him, you get infinite three ones. They can never stop you. And I'm like, while you're correct, and that does protect your Valduk, if I ever draw the Curator's Ward without the Valduk, it just doesn't do anything because I don't want to spend a whole card to give another one hexproof. And well, some folks were like, well, you can get the cards back. You know, when it dies, I'm like, well, only if it's historic. So only on legendary creatures or artifacts that we cast this on. And it's in a format that has, um, again, I know people could be listening to this five years from now, but in Dominaria, there were f five different ways at common to draw two cards in various colors. It was not a difficult thing to draw two cards for one card in this format if that's what you wanted to do. So like, even if you enabled this, like the, the payoff was if they break up your cool combo on your hexproof creature, you get to draw cards, which basically meant you had to chump block with it. So like for me, I never want to try to play this because Valduk is okay on his own. Curator's Ward is awful on its own. It's only good if I have drawn the Valduk and my opponent doesn't interact with it when I assemble this. So try to, to play those cards that are good on their own and then together do something greater rather than a card that's, you know, okay on its own and one that's actively bad if you don't have the other piece. Mm -hmm. um, any more examples of really good synergy from recent sets that you can think of? Really good synergy? Um, yeah. I mentioned uh, the Turtle from Dominaria, mm -hmm. the Snapjaw, uh, which is five and a blue for a four or five hexproof, and Sarah's... Uh, flight on Sarah's I, I, wings on Sarah's wings. That's the card, uh, which is three and a white for an enchantment. The creature becomes legendary, gets plus one, plus one flying vigilance and lifelink. So if you're ever able to assemble this, the turtle uh, is now a five, six flying lifelink vigilance hex proof. They're, they're basically never getting through this, right? They're, they're going to have to have enchantment removal to get you. And not everybody was even main decking enchantment removal in Dominaria. And some colors didn't even have access to it. That combo was, was pretty darn close to unbeatable. What made it good for me is the turtle was reasonable on its own. And uh, Sarah's Wings was good enough on its own that you, you could play it. You had to be careful when you played it, right? It, may, it usually turned whatever you played it in into a threat that your opponent had to answer. The downside was if they answered it, you were down a card, you know, down two cards. The upside was if they didn't, you were probably winning the game. Uh, but generally speaking, if I was playing blue-white and I got that, that Sarah's enchantment, I wanted to get the turtle. Now, I've also seen people kind of going nuts for that turtle and arcane flight. Uh, arcane flight is a blue enchantment that gives a creature plus one, plus one in flying. And I'm not as hot on this combo. 
because the Sarah's Wings, I could play it on anything and have an instant threat because of the life swing and the vigilance, right? Also, it being so expensive meant that I wasn't encouraged to cast it on a two drop on turn three, for example, just to get in some damage, which which may sound silly, but I honestly think the enchantment being more expensive forced you to play it in situations that were better for the card. Because Arcane Flight by itself, I'm going to find myself in a situation where I, like, I have to cast this on my Grizzly Bear to try to get in damage, and then I top deck the turtle later and it just it doesn't work out. Whereas if it had been the, the Sarah's Wings that I'd cast on that Grizzly Bear, all of a sudden, instead of three damage to my opponent, I'm dealing three to them while gaining three life and maintaining a blocker. So that's a six-point life swing instead of a three-point life swing. And I've still got a blocker, so that Sapperling that poked in for one isn't able to do that anymore. Uh, so, so for me, like, Sarah plus Turtle is good. Flight plus Turtle is bad. Because, like, again, the turtle's fine on its own. The flight just isn't. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I think wings on the turtle is probably as close to a game-winning combo as you're going to get. Right? Like, easily, I think. Um, Yeah. It doesn't win you the game right away, but generally speaking, your opponent can't answer it. Now, they they can deal with on Sarah's wings, so it's not quite at combo combo level but it's pretty close i would say that's that's at the top or even between synergy and combo if there's some kind of like void between the two that's like almost a combo and way better than synergy yeah and they can also play flyers and block it like there's there's ways to interact with this absolutely i think those are all great examples okay so we understand the difference between combo and synergy i'm sorry go ahead I got one more that I kind of have to talk about. And again, all of these examples are from Dominaria. That's what I've been playing lately, so I've seen these. But I I want to use this one as like the classic example of using two bad cards to build a combo. Are you familiar with Champion of the Flame from Dominaria? Um, remind me. I know it's a 1-1, but I don't think I've ever cast one. Yeah, there's a reason you've never cast one. <laughs> uh, it's one in red for a 1-1 trample. It gets plus two, plus two for each aura and equipment attached to it. And then there's also a card, Demonic Vigor, which is a black aura for one mana. Enchanted Creature gets plus one, plus one. And when it dies, it returns to its owner's hand. So Champion of the Flame, if you cast it and you don't have an equipment or an aura to put on it, it is awful. It's a two mana, one, one trample. This is just a bad card and not something that you would play. And Demonic Vigor, if you don't have something like the Champion of the Flame to put it on, it frankly doesn't do anything. If it doesn't pump the power enough that it's threatening your opponent's life total, they'll just take the damage and swing back. The best removal spell in the format, Exiles, meaning it's not returning to your hand anyway. And if they happen to kill the thing you're targeting in response to you playing Demonic Vigor, you just got two for one. However... If you're able to go turn two Champion of the Flame, turn three, play two Demonic Vigors on it, you're probably winning that game because there's not really much they can do about it. Or just Demonic Vigor plus Short Sword. The problem is you're, you're playing two bad cards to try to build one amazing combo. And generally speaking, you're better off making sure that all of your cards in your deck are, are able to stand on their own, Right. I I want my cards to do something. And that's where the quadrant theory evaluation really comes in as you're looking at some of this. So we're going to tell you to look for synergies and certainly do. But as you're doing it, bear in mind, sometimes you're not going to draw both pieces. So how good are they individually? And I think Champion of Flame and Demonic Vigor really illustrate that. Don't play two bad cards because they're so good together. Because uh, what if you don't draw both of them? Yeah, and I think one of the worst things you can do is try to double down on those things too. Yeah. Um, right. Like doubling up on your demonic vigors, for example. Um, now there are places where champion might be good, right? There's a, a, you know, like a, maybe a red, white aura deck or something like that. And you have a bunch of other good auras that all go together and a bunch of, you know, maybe you have a, a Valduck as well or something like that. Um, j- just keep in mind is that don't compound your mistakes, right? Don't, don't continually put or add bad cards to your deck um, look for the synergies instead because your deck will be more consistent overall and that consistency wins more games uh, than combos usually. Yeah. Now that said, if you're in cube and want to go for the Splinter Twin combo, like this podcast is probably too basic for you anyway, but by all means have fun. 
and it, it, again, fun should probably be somewhere on the quadrant theory. If if all you want to do is cast Champion of Flames and put auras on them, by all means, have a blast. But I, I'm not going to argue that there's a deck that Champion of Flame is good in because I don't think there is. If your goal is just to win, the card's awful. It like you have to enchant it for it to do anything. And the fact that it's just making your enchantment better when you do means that like it's even more of a target for your opponent's removal and it's just asking to get two for one. Like literally a two mana two two is a better target for an aura, uh, because if they kill it, like you've turned your worst creature into a threat and presumably still have other creatures. Whereas here you've done that, but at the cost of playing a two mana one one in your deck, like Imagine you have to block. I understand the idea is you build a very aggressive deck with the idea that I'm always going to be attacking. But what happens when you're on the draw against another aggressive deck? All of a sudden, that you know they go two two into three three, and you're like champion of flame. Yeah, jump block. Champion. It's of not flame, a happy don't, place. Don't jump block and then lose to Shiv and Fire. Yep. Um. Now, and I, I just want to mention too that we talked a lot about enchantments here as being part of 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 combos and synergy and things like that and and the reason is is because i think that's the easiest example of that and we don't mean to make it sound like that like enchantments are all all bad when it comes to that because obviously they have with the inherent you know nature of getting two for one um but there's a lot of places you know in, in recent sets where enchantment synergy is a very powerful thing right so don't think that we're you know poo-pooing enchantments here just in general um, I think they've got a lot better recently so it's just just happened to be those are all the examples that we could think of because they're easy um and and they're usually the ones that new players can easily identify is like hey i can put this enchantment on this thing and it works um mm -hmm. so like once you've got past that you're already past level one level two is just evaluating which ones are good and which ones are bad we've also seen just to, to put a little hat on the synergy area here tribal is usually a synergy and we've seen some of that recently in ixalan and Dominaria, and even in Days of Yore, we've seen zombie synergies in, in Innistrad and stuff like that. So um, just for example, there was a pirate in Ixalan that gave other attacking pirates plus two plus O. Oh. Like, that was a pretty easy synergy to figure out. As you're drafting, if you have that card in your pile, and you see a reasonable three drop that's not a pirate, and a reasonable three drop that is a pirate, you should probably take the pirate, because it's going to synergize with your other pirate card. Um, Dominaria had a Saprling Lord. Uh, it was a two mana two, two that gave other Saprlings and fungus plus one plus one. So once you have that as a two drop, or if you have a bunch of Saprlings in your deck already and you see that going by, maybe you're like, you know, there's, there's this decent four drop here, but I've already got five Saprlings and fungus cards for my deck. This might be pretty good for me. Let's go ahead and pick one up even though it doesn't quite fit with Drafting Brave and it doesn't quite fit with the Quadrant Theory, it's just going to play really well with the other cards in your deck while still being reasonable on its own. A rising tide lifts all boats, is what I like to say. So your 2-2 Lord will rise all your sapperlings a little bit higher, making your deck a little bit better. A rising fungus lifts all sapperlings? Uh, that sounds a little gross, but I like, I like mine a little better. It does. It does. Okay. All right. So combos, synergy, I think we're clear now. We agree on the definition and we've come up with some good examples here. Um, next up, I believe, was defining what makes a good first pick. Correct. So we've gone through already drafting brave, quadrant theory, and synergy. You're not going to have any synergy in your first pick. But I wanted to, to bring this out. Um, because this is something that I think people so very readily miss. This, these, these two particular cards come up together very often in Dominaria. Icy Manipulator and Sarah Angel. I can't tell you how many times I've seen those two in the same pack. Icy Manipulator is four mana for an artifact. You can spend one and tap it and tap target permanent. Sarah Angel is three white white for a four four flying vigilance. I don't think Sarah Angel would quite be considered a bomb by modern standards, but the card's pretty dang good. You stick this, your opponent is going to need to interact with it. In most cases, it will probably kill them in four turns if they don't. 
Uh, they may be able to chump it a little bit. They've probably taken some damage earlier in the game. It it also is there as a blocker. So if their plan was to try to kill you with two threes and three threes on the ground, they're no longer able to do that with Sarah Angel. Now, Icy Manipulator is just a more powerful card than Sarah Angel to begin with. But imagine for a minute that it's not. The fact that it's colorless just makes it a better first pick. Because if I take the Sarah Angel... I can only play that if I'm playing white. If I take the Icy Manipulator, I can play it no matter what. I'm curious about your take on this, Dave. In a draft today, I first picked Icy Manipulator over Lyra. Mm, that Lyra is like... three white white for a 5-5 five, five flying first strike. Uh, that's per- that's pushing it for me, I think. I think, I think she's the cutoff or close to the cutoff where... Um... I would probably take her, but I don't fault you. And the, and the reason I don't fault you is because you're looking for the card that goes in 100% of your decks, which Icy Manipulator is. Um, I think Lyra is the is just too good, though, and it, and it kind of warps your draft around taking her. So, you know, if you take Sarah Angel, you might be like, you know, 40% to play it, right? Depending on how the draft breaks, right? You, you're not splashing Sarah Angel um, because it's double white. Um, but if you know, there's a bunch of combos where you end up white just naturally and and hopefully your draft goes that way. But I think Lyra is a little different because she's so powerful that you, at least I warp my draft around her and I'm like, I have to do whatever I can to play white, meaning I'm going to cut white off to my opponent that I'm passing to. Um, and I might not get white in pack two, let's say, or sorry, I might not get white in pack three, but I'm going to take everything I can in pack two and just admit that I'm going to play like primarily black with seven white lands in my deck right yeah and the reason is because she's so good she's just insane if you knock that down a peg like i'm trying to think of a card that's somewhere between sarah angel and lyra now it becomes a lot easier for me to take icy manipulator because i'm 100 percent to play a card that's like an eight out of ten let's say as opposed to 40 or 50 percent to play a card that's an eight and a half out of ten or a nine out of ten and, you know, Icy being colorless and being repeatable and just being good removal in a set that needs removal, you know, you need removal in your deck. You know, it. I can't fault anyone for taking it first pick out of most packs. Um, but I think Lyra is pretty close to where I would draw that line. I'm going to defend myself, and then I'm, I'm going to give some other examples. Um, Lyra is one more mana for lifelink, minus vigilance, plus one, plus one from the Sarah Angel. It is obviously a better card, but I believe that if you draft what is open from the person that's passing to you, your deck will be better than if you force a particular color to try to play a bomb. So for me, even if I first pick that Lyra, and this is a little bit of a difference between Dave and my drafting styles, and it is okay for you to have your own drafting style, and you will have your own drafting style. For example, if any of these cards have a picture of Nicol Bolas on them, I'm just taking it and I'm playing it. That's my favorite character in Magic's history and I'm going to have some fun with it. And it's okay for you to do that too. But generally speaking, the way that I'm drafting is looking to see what's open. So I don't want to pick a card that's going to force me into color into a color if I have an alternative. In this particular draft, as it turns out, blue and black was very open. And we got kind of an absurd deck with Rona and we're able to recur all these artifacts uh, as, as well as some sagas if I'm remembering correctly. I would have felt pretty stupid if white was open, but I still would have felt like I made the right pick because, again, I see manipulators going in all of my decks, uh, Lyra or Sarah Angel or whatever monocolored card we're talking about is only going in the ones that are playing that color. Um, I, it, like it, your Your first picks, the reason they're so important is like if you open any random pack of magic cards... There's probably three really good cards in the pack, and then a bunch of cards that are somewhat interchangeable, right? Like, some may be better than others in certain circumstances, but you only get so many of these powerful picks. If if I'm picking a colorless card, what I'm trying to do is giving up a little bit on power level to maximize my likelihood of being able to play it. And I would encourage you as you start to and, and do your first drafts and you're learning about draft to try to maximize those number of, of powerful first picks that you can play. Uh, let, let me give you another example that, that may be a little clearer and I think Dave can get, get behind this one with me. 
Uh, Gargoyle Sentinel was in the latest M set. It's three mana for a 3-3 artifact with Defender. You can spend three. It loses Defender and gains Flying. Versus Starcrown Stag. Uh, Starcrown Stag was three and a white for a 3-3. When it attacks, you tap target creature defending player controls. Which of those do you think is a better first pick? Um, I like the stag a lot more. <laughs> Are you serious? <laughs> I'm serious. We, we okay. disagree on this one. And, and, and the reason is, is because I think it's significantly more powerful than the gargoyle. If I remember correctly, I didn't draft a lot of M19. Okay. Um, but, but I remember the stag just being so much better than a lot of the white, I think it was a common yeah, the stag was a common. The sentinel was an uncommon. Right, and, and I just remember, remember being such a role player in a lot of white decks, and like you tucked it in any white deck, right? Obviously, there's a chance you're not playing it, but like the and the reason is, is I'm not sad if I pass if I pass a gargoyle. Do you know what I mean? Like like if if I don't end up with a gargoyle in my deck, I probably have something else that fills that spot, and I'm okay with that. Um, and, and I think I think the stag is just so much better that I'm, I'm definitely taking the stag. But I see where you're going with this, right? You you are an advocate of staying. Of, of picking the colorless cards that you know are going to go in your deck. Um, I just think this is a little different than the Ice Manipulator versus Lyra combo, for example. Yeah, and I, I can see that argument. For me, now, in this case, are you going to force more white cards because you have a stag? No, but it would be a tiebreaker for me if there were two close cards. Like, if there was two pieces of removal, right? And, and one of them is white, you take the white one. Yeah, like, I'll take a Luminous Bonds over a Murder... Maybe if if I have a stag in my pile already, whereas if if I had the gargoyle, I'd take the murder probably. You yeah. know what I mean? Like like it starts to warp my draft a little bit that way. But at that point, you're looking at the difference between like an eight and a seven and a half out of ten or something like that. Right? Like like hopefully that's what you're doing. But I'm not like not like if I p- picked a lyra, right? Like I'm not I'm not looking at taking you know bad white cards to make sure that I play this stag. I'm just looking to say like I'm very happy if I end up there, and if I don't end up there you know i'm not sad that i passed a gargoyle for example okay and from my perspective like think about these things as you're drafting it it's okay to go different ways with this and i'm glad that we're disagreeing about this because i think it can give you some perspective Mm -hmm. but for me i'm going to take the sentinel every time um just on an efficiency level a three three for three is pretty dang good in this particular format there were a lot of synergies with artifacts and flying was particularly powerful. So something to do with your mana late game meant that this card was relevant on turn three just to jump in front of a 3-3 three, three, or a 2-3 that was attacking you. And then later in the game, it was still impactful. And it's difficult to find three drops that do something on turn three and do something on turn 10. Uh, so for me, I, I was pretty happy with the Sentinel. Again, if if you're playing white, the Stag is going to be one of the, the role players in your white deck. Uh, but if you're not playing white, it's going to be in your sideboard. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I tend to value colorless more than anything else. Let's let's do one more of these and see if I can bring Dave over to my way of thinking. Um, and I, I'm going to use the same card. In this pack, there is a Starcrown Stag and a Draconic Disciple. Disciple was one red-green for a 2-2. Taps for any color of mana. You could spend six mana, tap it and sack it, and you get a 5-5 dragon token. Uh, I, I wish I remembered how to draft M19. I think I think I'm still on the stag here, and the reason is is because it's one color, and the draconic disciple, you're not splashing for it. And I and I think we sh- we should talk about this where splashability, if that's a word, is important when it comes to making a first pick sometimes because it just opens up the number of decks that you're going to put that card in. So a generally speaking, at least in M19 your gold card might not be splashable. You know, you're probably not splashing a stag in that case either, but a stag goes into more decks than the disciple does. Yeah. I think. On, on its own, the Draconic Disciple is an inherently more powerful card. Mm-hmm. But if I take it first pick, I'm locking myself into one out of 10 color pairs. Where if I take the stag first pick, I'm opening myself up to, to five of those potential pairs. I can pair white with any of the other four colors and be good to go. And I do think it's worth addressing splashability here. We're going to do an episode in the future where we talk about splashing. That's probably draft 201, I suppose. But just a, a very short mention here. Splashing is when you're you're playing a two-color deck 
and this is a very basic definition, but we're just going to do this nice and simple. If I'm playing a red-white deck, but I'm also putting one black card in that deck, and then I'm going to use some mana fixing or maybe even just some extra basics to play that black card. The reason that I would want to do that is because that black card only has one black mana in its casting cost, and it's very good in the late game. An example of, of that quite often is any black removal spell. Uh, so generally speaking, um, Eviscerate is one that we can talk about. That's the one in Dominaria. It's three and a black for a sorcery, destroy target creature. That's not something that you're looking to cast on turn four, and it's something that's going to be pretty good later in the game. So turn six, seven, eight. As long as I can find those you know, three sources that I've put in the deck to be able to play it, I can do, do what's called splashing that. So there might be a scenario where I'm looking at, um, actually this is a perfect example, Eviscerate and Settle the Score. Settle the Score was two black black for a sorcery exile target creature, and then it had some additional text about Planeswalkers. It's also in a format where graveyards mattered, so the exile was important. I am first picking Eviscerate over Settle the Score all day long because I can splash that in any deck. Whereas if I'm already black and I open that in pack two, I'm taking the settle the score because the exile is relevant and the card's just better. But again, by taking that eviscerate, I've got the possibility to play white green and splash it. If I take the settle the score first, I don't have that possibility. I'm committing to black for that particular card. Yep, exactly. And I think that's key to go in, being able to recognize which cards are splashable, not even just from a mana cost perspective, but where they fit into the quadrant theory and you mentioned this but i just want to touch on it here is um the reason your splash cards are late game cards is because you can't count on having your splash mana early right so you have to dig into your deck to get both the combination of your mana and your splash card or your fixing and your splash card which happens later in the game than it does if you're playing cards that are on color so that's why it has to be good in that late game you would never splash a two drop unless that two drop has great utility in the mid to late game. Yeah. And that, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're expensive spells, um, just that they're good late game. So seal away is one in a white for an enchantment. When it enters the battlefield, exile target tapped creature. Like that's a fine splash because it's removal. It doesn't matter that it's cheap, but I, I think to kind of put a pin on this, when you're going through and making your first pick, you should pick the most powerful card. Whatever that is, you should just take it. If there are cards that are close in power level after you've evaluated them on Brave and you've evaluated them on the Quadrant Theory, try to think about which of these cards am I more likely to be able to play in more decks. If there's a gold card in the pack and it's just more powerful than the monocolored cards, by all means take it. Um, again, I've been drafting a lot of Dominaria, but if I open a Slimefoot... I'm taking the slime foot. Uh, that's one green black for a two, three. You can spend four mana to make sapperling tokens. And when they die, it drains your opponent. The card was absolutely a house in Dominaria draft. So I'm happy to take that and then say, you know what? If black green isn't open, I don't have to play it. But if it is, this is so good in that deck that I'm, I'm willing to pass that single colored removal spell for it because it's a legitimate bomb. But if they're close, try to do that evaluation of which of these cards goes in more decks. Is this red removal spell really only good if a deck's being aggressive? Is this white removal spell really only good if a deck's being defensive? Like, these are questions that you should ask and then try to pick that card that's going to fit in more decks. Yep. And all that is, all you're trying to do there is make your deck more consistent because the cards you're picking are, are more powerful on average right like your first pick is more powerful than your fifth pick on average so if you get a chance to play it your deck's power level and consistency just goes up mm -hmm. so that's why your ice manipulator pick was so important to talk about because every time you play ice manipulator is good but anytime lyra's in your sideboard is not so good correct correct exactly all right i'm still on lyra but yeah and that's okay and that's okay that's okay so I want to talk about staying open and reading signals kind of as our last little bit here. Um, staying open is the idea that I'm going to switch colors if I need to so that I can get into the open color. 
So let's talk about what open means. I, I'm only going to open, like physically open, three cards, three packs of cards while we're drafting. All of the other packs that I'm going to see are passed to me from other people or bots or whatever at the draft. So what I really want to do is figure out what the people that are handing me those cards, what colors they're not playing. If I can figure out that the, the person passing to me is playing black-green and then get out of black-green, my deck is going to be significantly better than if I'm fighting for them with those black-green cards because that means they're taking all of the best ones and I'm getting the next ones. I want to give you a little bit of a magic history lesson and then I can explain like where things have come since then and the good and bad that's gone with that. In, in the very old days of magic, and I, I've been playing for gosh, 25 years now, I'm getting old. There were only six or seven cards that we would say were actually playable in limited. We'd have really awful cards. So when I say Champion of Flame is a bad card in Dominaria, it's not embarrassing to put it in your deck. It's not straight up in playable. It's just not particularly good. We would have cards in old sets that literally didn't do anything. And what that meant was, if I didn't figure out what colors were open, my deck was just terrible. To the point that like only 15 cards in my deck actually did anything, and the others were just terrible things. I'm talking about an instant that says change the color of target creature to the color of your choice until end of turn. Like that's the level of card we're talking about. It just doesn't do anything at all. So I was tremendously punished for not figuring out what was open. If I'm a new player getting into draft, my deck's going to be awful. Magic has evolved since then, and we did a whole podcast on this called When Medium Cards Go Bad, and that they just don't really print bad cards anymore. They print some situational cards. They certainly print some cards that are better than others, but they just don't print that garbage anymore. And what that means is if I first pick, I don't know, say a Lyra over an Icy Manipulator, and then force a white deck, I can still make that happen and have a playable deck. It may not be as good as if I, and Lyra's a bad example because it's a great card, but it, it may not be as good as if I'd read the signals and figured out that I was actually supposed to be out of white and into blue-green. So the, the difference is now, if you can do this, what we're about to teach you how to do, you will have a stronger deck than if you don't. You're going to get a playable deck either way. That also means like if it's fun for you to draft red-green and you want to do that every time, you can go do that and get a playable deck every time you play regardless of what the format is. That's okay. There's a ton of people doing this at a Friday Night Magic right now. But if, if you want to get the best, you'll learn to figure out what's open. The hardest thing to do is put that first pick in your sideboard. But my advice is for the first four-ish picks of the draft, kind of ignore what you've already picked. Now, Dave mentioned a good tiebreaker earlier. If you first picked a very good white card, and then you see Luminous Bonds, which is two and a white for an aura enchanted creature can't attack or block, versus Murder, one black black for an instant destroy target creature. Murder's a better removal spell. But if I first picked a pretty good white creature, and then I'm choosing between those two, I'll give the extra weight to the Luminous Bonds. However, if I first picked a good red card and I see Luminous Bonds in the pack and a medium red creature, I'm just taking the Luminous Bonds. It doesn't matter to me that I already have a red card because I'm not banking on playing it. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely, right? Like, when I look at it as a tiebreaker, it's like if the cards are really close together, so like half a grade or a grade like you're rating things on a scale of one to ten is probably close enough for me to to worry about that because i want to play my first pick or i want to play my second pick if it's powerful if i don't care about those cards whatever like i'm just going to take the best card every single time or if it's so much better i'm just going to take the best card every time i think ixalan was actually a really good format for teaching people how to get into the open lane as quickly as possible rivals may have been even better at it because there were basically four specific decks that you could play based on the tribes, the dinosaurs, pirates, vampires, and merfolk. And if I first picked a good pirate card, and then second picked a pretty okay pirate card, and then got past a merfolk bomb, I'm merfolk now. 
I'm just flushing those pirates. They don't go in the same deck. I'm not going to play them. And from there, I'm just picking all the merfolk cards that I can get in here. And that's that's a good example of why you kind of want to stay open. So, like, it may seem weird after... And, you know, people will tease me about this sometimes when I'm streaming. My win rate's still absurd, still going basically infinite in Arena, and have gone infinite on Magic Online for four years, just to put a little credentials behind this. Cashed multiple GPs. Uh, top eight of the team GP. Like, I, I sort of know what I'm talking about. But there are times where I'll be five picks into a draft and have cards of five different colors. Usually that by that point, though, I've recognized that three of the colors seem open and two of them seem cut off. And we can start narrowing it down. I don't have to play all the cards I pick. But figuring out what's open in that first pack means that I can get past bombs or solid removal cards uh, in the third pack. Now, there's also something about sending signals, right? Now, the signals that you're sending are less important than the ones that you're receiving, but they are still important. And I think this probably goes a little bit deeper than we want to go on an introductory course. If you can get the idea of figure out what the person who's passing you the first and third pack are not taking, your deck's going to be pretty darn good. Plus one to that is when you can kind of keep in mind what you're passing to the person in your packs, what you're sending them, you can get an idea of what you're going to get back in pack two. And I think just to make sure this is completely like transparent and understood, I should explain the mechanics of this. When we're drafting, if you're doing it online, imagine that you're doing the paper version, which you're sitting at a round table with seven other players. You open your first pack of cards select one, and pass it to the left. Those packs keep getting passed to the left from each player until there are no more cards. When you open the second pack, you do the same thing, but you pass it to the right. The third pack goes to the left again. So that means that that person that's sending me these cards is going to send me two packs of cards, the first one and the third one. The person that I'm passing to is going to send me one pack of cards, the second one. So if I've done a really good job of taking most of the good red cards out of all of the packs that I've seen in that first round, my neighbor should probably get the idea that they don't want to be taking red cards because they're not getting any pack three. So ideally, they're going to send them to me, this pack. So like, bear in mind that it matters what you're passing, and it, it does whether you're playing with people or bots, like the bots actually do seem to take this into consideration as I've played with them, at least in my experience on Arena currently, and people certainly do. But I would still argue that like reading those signals is, is more important uh, than sending them in the beginning. Makes sense. Yeah, I, I think to, to wrap this one up, the most important thing for me is be willing to switch colors if your first and second pick don't pan out. Um, some of the best draft decks I've ever seen have a bomb in the sideboard or an excellent removal spell in the sideboard. I've also seen people get married to a first pick out of a relatively weak pack. I had a a pack I opened today in Dominaria that just didn't have anything good in it. And I I think you had suggested we pick the Baloth Gorger out of that pack. Like it, it almost didn't matter what we picked, but let's say we did. That's, uh, two green, green for a four, four. You can also kick it and make it a 7-7 for a lot of mana late in the game. Like, if I first pick that out of an absolutely awful pack, I am by no means green. Like, don't get married to green for a medium card. Don't get married to any color for a medium card. I would argue don't get married to a color even for a really good card. Take it into consideration, but don't feel like you have to play it. You're getting choked up. You're thinking of all those lost loves, your first picks that have gone the way they've hit the road. They're never coming back. All those planeswalkers in my sideboard, man, it hurts. (laughs) Uh, No, you're absolutely right, though. Um, One of the hardest things for me to do is is giving up on those first pick unbeatable cards. Um, Like I said, there's very rare, very rarely will I force, try to force a deck now. I think Lyra is probably one of the only ones. Um, but just recently, I, I tried to force that that deck um, because she's so powerful, and it did come together in the end. But I really had to scrap like playables together in, in pack three and making sure that I'm getting all of my all of my cards. So y- if you do it, recognize that you're hurting yourself. You're making your deck less consistent or less powerful if you don't draw Lyra. But if you do, you kind of win the game. Hopefully, right? Like that's what you're banking on. You're almost building a combo deck 
where the combo is one card. <laughs> yeah. And, and your 39 other cards are trying to get you to that one combo piece because you can't win any other way. Um, I feel like that works better against worse opponents, honestly, because like, I, I and, and this is another topic. I'd suggest you go listen to that episode, fire it off if you'd like to hear more about this. But like, so many of the games that I win, I'm still holding a removal spell in my hand when I do. Mm-hmm. Because I am just not going to use removal on creatures that don't matter. If my board can answer your creature, I am holding on to that murder. And it's got Lyra's name on it. Uh, like This comes from playing Magic a million years ago where your opponent had one bomb in their deck and you had one removal spell in your deck. And if you use that removal spell on their non-bomb... Like, the game was going to go long enough that they were eventually going to draw it and kill you with it. You just couldn't do it. You had to hold on to that terror in case they drew their Sarah Angel. Yeah, like, usually when I'm thinking about that is I I compare, you know, my creatures, my good creatures to potential removal in my opponent's deck. And it's like, okay, well, if I play Lyra, they beat it with an Eviscerate. Okay, now we go to the next step down. If I play my Sarah Angel, they beat it with a vicious offering kicked or something like that. And eventually you're going to run them out of removal. So is my fourth or fifth best creature in my deck, how good is it? Right. And and if it's, if it's good, if it's good or great, I really like my, my odds there. But if it's like, if it's a really bad two drop is my fifth best creature. <laughs> yeah. You're I not have, in a happy place. I have problems. Right. So like putting all your eggs in one basket or just putting, just having one egg and carrying it around in your hand and hoping you don't drop it. Um, it does not make for a consistently successful limited deck, right? So, like, you know, if if you could show me a deck that had, like, a 10 out of 10 bomb and then a bunch of 4s and 5s on the bottom end of my of my creature scale and nothing in between, and then you show me a deck with a bunch of 8s without telling me what cards they are, it's like, well, I'll, I'll probably take the 8s, you know, 99 times out of 100 because it's just more consistent and I'm threat deep, right? I'm threat dense, I think is the term that I've heard used. If you're threat light, you know, your opponent needs one removal spell to end your day. So you you better have a bunch of removal to back it up and hope your two twos get there because you're not winning otherwise. Yeah, I've done that before. You know, another good way to think about this, and this is a whole different topic, uh, and we've done some episodes on this, but in, in Team Sealed, you have three people building sealed decks out of a shared pool. And I'd have a lot of people ask me for advice on that and say, should we build two broken decks and one bad deck or three okay decks? And you, I, my advice is always build the three okay decks. Like instead of having, you know, two tens and a one, I'd rather have three sixes, like to, to use Dave's analogy, because you, you want that consistency as you're playing over the course of a tournament, over the course of an event, a day, an evening, a lifetime, however it is you want to track it. So just for a recap today... The, the main lessons I want to get across to you are look for synergy within the cards that you're drafting, but make sure that those cards can hold the board on their own. Don't play a card only because it combos with one other card in your deck. Play it because it's okay on its own. Uh, both pieces are okay on their own. When you're making a pack one, pick one. You're making your first pick. After you've evaluated what the most powerful cards are, use... How many decks can I play this in as a tiebreaker? Use that as a way to, to try to get a little bit more value in there. And maybe even push you into a colorless card or a monocolored card over you know a colored card or a dual colored card or even a tricolored card for that matter. Format depending. And then lastly, as you're drafting, try to pay attention to the signals that you're getting and stay open. The, the main thing here is not to decide that you're black-green because your first pick was a pretty good black removal spell and your second pick was a pretty good green creature if you just start taking all the black and green cards that you see from there your deck will be significantly weaker than if you pay attention to what's coming around and notice that somebody's actually passing you a really good red white aggressive deck that's a great recap for draft 102 and we'll do more of these in the future probably adding some more advanced topics but i think this is a really good starting point for a lot of new people coming to arena and there are a lot of new people coming to arena to draft or to play constructed. And it's really exciting. So we hope that you can get some value out of this. Um, experienced players might not get any value out of this, or at least, you know, good limited players might not. Um, but you know, I still of- argue that like hearing the fundamentals is probably a good thing for you because even if you're good at limited, you may not necessarily understand why, 
But when you think through some of this theory and, and actually understand why you're good at limited and are like, you know, I actually I've been doing that the whole time. I just couldn't have put a name on it. Um, I, I think understanding the theory behind why you're good at what you do, I can give you the tools you need to get better. That's I couldn't have put it better myself. That's that's a, that's an outstanding point. So we hope you get some value out of this. And if you do, you know, tell your friends, come stay high in the streams, let us know that you got your first seven, one or your first six, three or whatever you're proud of when it comes to limited. Um, you know, we're all here to, to, to win and get better. Or at least, you know, that's the goal of the game. So we'd like to hear if, uh, if we help you out to do that, where, uh, where can they catch you streaming and giving a, a university course on drafting next week? <laughs> yeah, that is what I've done all week and probably what I'll do all next week too. Uh, you can find me at twitch.tv slash simulin, S-E-M-U-L-I-N. Uh, you can also tweet me pictures of your deck. Uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm at simulin. And if you're using the MTG Arena Pro tracker and have your draft recorded, um, I, I've taken a look at a couple of those on stream and actually had a really good time with it. Uh, so I'm not going to promise that I'll get to all of those because if I've got like you know eight people asking, I probably can't. Uh, but we've been looking at a couple of those every day. So like... If you're running that anyway and saving the drafts, consider bringing that by as a conversation starter. That's a good way to start a conversation. You can catch me streaming at twitch.tv slash dcivillian. That's D-S-A-V-I-L-L-I-A-N. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter. We're at men Moto. If you're interested in supporting the podcast beyond just listening and watching our streams, you can uh, check us out on Patreon. We're at patreon.com slash menfromoto. Once again, thanks to Face to Face Games for the host and all the support. We'll catch you next time. Adios.